Hello, and welcome to Guiding Assets, the flagship investment podcast for CFA Institute. Off the top, keen listeners may notice my velvety tones this week. While I never aspire to be as cool as Barry White, this week I'll give it a go as I slowly get over this bug that I've been fighting. In this episode, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. Olivier Siboni. Dr. Siboni is Professor of Strategy and Business Policy at HEC Paris and Associate Fellow of Oxford University's Said Business School. Previously, he was a senior partner of McKinsey & Co., where he spent 24 years consulting in France and the U.S., but most salient to our discussion today is his research into effective decision-making. The author of four books, his latest includes the 2021 New York Times bestseller, Noise, A Flaw in Human Judgment. Monsieur Siboney co-authored this book with Cass Sunstein, the noted legal scholar and co-author of another best-selling book, Nudge, as well as someone regarded as behavioral economics royalty among many of our listeners, the Nobel Prize-winning psychologist and economist Daniel Kahneman, whose seminal work, Thinking Fast and Slow, highlighted the corrosive impact of cognitive biases on rational economic thinking. Their collaboration yielded a truly excellent book in Noise, which the Washington Post described as having the potential to help people make more humane and fair decisions, save lives, and prevent time, money, and talent from going to waste. A tall order to be sure, and with that, I welcome you, Olivier. Thank you, Mike. Glad to be here. Before we dive into the findings of your book, I was hoping if you could start us off with a definition. What is noise, and how specifically does it differ from bias? Well, I'm glad you asked, Mike, because noise means a lot of things to a lot of different people. And since we wrote the book, we've had a lot of people write to us and say, oh, but you don't talk about this. So we do define noise in a very specific and fairly narrow way. We define noise as unwanted variability in judgments, and specifically as variability in judgments that is not explained by biases. So if we double click on this, uh, the best way to do that is to take a concrete example. Suppose that you suffer from some symptoms and you go see one doctor and he tells you, it's COVID, Mike. And you then go see another doctor and he tells you, no, it's not COVID, it's the flu. Well, Obviously, this is unwanted variability because there is a correct answer here. You either have COVID or you don't. And in this particular example, there is a test which probably would give you the answer. But for, sadly, for many medical conditions, it's not that easy to know who is right. The only thing you know for sure is that if two doctors disagree, at least one of them must be wrong. And in every system like this one, as we as we call it, in every set of in in every situation where we believe there is a correct answer, variability is essentially unwanted. If you take an asset management firm, for instance, where a number of different employees are tasked with making judgments about the value of particular securities, for instance, if there is a big difference in the number that the firm will get, depending on the happenstance of which individual is assigned the task of evaluating a particular stock, that's a problem. It's a very different thing from your firm making one judgment and another firm in the market making a different judgment. That is good variability because it creates the opportunity for a trade. But if you have people inside your organization, inside this system, who have different opinions about what something is worth and you don't have a good mechanism to resolve that disagreement, you have noise. So noise is basically the unwanted variability of judgments 
And in those kinds of systems, it is unwanted. Now, one of the uh, examples I've heard you use, Olivier, was with the dartboard. I wonder if you could use that and talk our, our listeners through. Kind of, it's, I find it helpful just to sort of visualize when you talk about bias versus the, the noise versus you know, a combination of the two. Yeah, it's a good way to illustrate the difference between noise and bias. So it's sadly not the best thing for a podcast to use a visual example, but let's try to let's try to illustrate what we mean. The suppose that you have um, that that you're a group of friends, you're five friends, and you go to the 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 shooting range, and you use the same rifle to shoot at the same target. And when we look at the result. One ideal scenario would be that all of you have more or less hit the bullseye. That would be great. Now, suppose that all of you have hit the same place, but it's not the bullseye. It's somewhere in, say, the lower left quarter of the target. You look at this and immediately you ask, what is wrong with the rifle? Right? There must be a reason why every one of these five shooters has hit the same place on the on, on the target, but not the right place. Probably it's something with the rifle that has something wrong with the 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 eyesight of the rifle, or or maybe the wind is blowing really hard. I mean something is amiss. That's a bias. That's a shared error, an error that is made by all your shooters. It calls for a causal explanation. It immediately seems to you that there must be a reason why everybody is making the same mistake. And it also supports a prediction. If I tell you that a sixth shooter is going to use the same rifle and ask you where the shooter is going to hit, you're very easily going to guess that he's going to hit in the same place that the first five did. So that's a bias. Now imagine that you see what is in fact much more common when you look at the target where five friends have tried to shoot. You see that their shots are all over the place, roughly centered on the bullseye, but all over the target. That is noise. It's not a directional error. It's not a shared error. It's not an error that calls for an explanation other than these aren't perfect shooters. You can't blame the rifle for this. You can't blame the wind. There is no common explanation for all these mistakes. And most importantly, it's not a mistake that supports a prediction. If I tell you that a sixth person is going to shoot, you have no idea where that person's shot is going to land. So the difference between Bias and noise is a very simple one. Bias is a shared error that is in a predictable direction and that supports a prediction about where the average error is going to be in the future. Noise has none of those features. It's an unpredictable, random, unexplained error. And, and the problematic part of it is where you have professionals who you expect to be you know, binary in their answers. You expect one thing. There's no um, judgment that would you would hope would be applied to it, but they give you different different answers that can be you know, problematic and, and expensive. That's quite right. The, what is troubling about noise and what motivated us to, to write this book is not that it exists. Of course, we know there is noise. Of course, we know that when people make judgments, they are not in perfect agreement. That's why they're not machines, right? If I, if I ask you what's the... You know, what's the, I don't know, what's the probability that it's going to rain tomorrow? You know, given a look at the sky and your knowledge of the season and so on, you're not going to give exactly the same number that I'm going to give, but you know, maybe you're going to say it's 10%. I'm going to say it's 
If you say it's zero and I say it's 100, we're going to be surprised. We're going to assume that one of us is very wrong or hasn't understood the question. In fact, that's what we find in many situations. We find that noise, the, the, the disparities, the variability in the answers, is much greater than we assume. What we tend to assume is that professionals who have been trained the same way, who are supposed to apply the same methods and who have the same information and the same incentives are not going to be in perfect agreement, but that they are going to be in almost perfect agreement. We expect what we've come to call bounded disagreement. And when we actually do these experiments, when we do what we call noise audits, where we actually give the same data to different individuals in the same system, in the same organization, we find that they disagree a lot more than we would expect. Here's an example in investment, in fact. When we did this experiment that I was describing earlier, where we give the description of a particular investment, particular security, to a number of analysts in the same investment firm. You ask the leaders of the investment firm, how much do you expect these judgments to disagree? And they won't commit to a number because they know that we're talking about noise and they're careful and smart people, but they don't expect a very large number. In fact, when we ran the experiment, the mean difference between two randomly chosen analysts was 44% of the average of their two estimates. So quite a big difference. You know, 44% when you, you're trying to estimate the fair value of a stock is a big difference. You know, it is a difference that would be much more than you need to justify a trade. But it's actually not one that would justify a trade. It's one between two people inside your company who have different views about the value of that stock. So that's the basic finding that we've tried to emphasize in the book. Wherever there is judgment, there is going to be noise and much more of it than you think. And that's the key issue. Yeah, that's that's right. Because you say that there's, you know, in the book that wherever there's judgment, there's noise. Noise is expensive. But the good news is that your third conclusion is that, that you can do something about it. So I wonder if you could, you know, take us through some of the strategies that, that you've developed around addressing noise and, and helping to mitigate that. I can try. The first basic strategy to address the problem of noise starts with the proposition that wherever there is judgment, there is noise, which of course means that wherever, wherever you want not to have noise, you can't have judgment. And that's what leads you straight to automating decisions and to uh, replacing human judgment with typically these days AI or less typically, but just as effectively as many case, in many cases, replacing judgment with simple rules, simple algorithms, simple decision systems that basically take the decision away from the realm of judgment. Wherever you can do that, it's actually something you should consider. And typically for decisions that aren't too complex, whenever you can replace human judgment with a simple rule, of course, the simple rule is going to make mistakes, but all the evidence we have suggests that even the simplest rule will typically make fewer mistakes than the humans who think they are much smarter than the simple rule. So it is something to consider. Now, when we're talking about complex choices like investment decisions, obviously, if there was a very simple rule to decide what to invest in and what not to invest in, the market would have figured it out and you wouldn't be able to beat the market with it. So you need something smarter than that. The question of whether you can actually use AI for some important investment decisions 
is a deep and important question on which I'm sure that all your listeners have very strong views. And I'm not an expert on investment. I don't have one. What I suspect is that for practical purposes, in many classes of investment, you're not going to have enough data to train your artificial intelligence models. You're not going to have enough data to build good algorithms. And therefore, these decisions are, for the predictable future, going to remain human decisions. When you're looking at private equity, when you're looking at venture capital, this remains fundamentally a judgment. And by the way, the people who work in those industries are very conscious of that, are very proud of their judgments quite often, are very keen to bet on individuals who are viewed as having had good judgments in the past. So there is a strong belief that judgment matters. And I tend to personally subscribe to that belief. I tend to believe that if there was a way to take judgment out of the equation here, it would have been figured out, but there probably isn't. So we need judgment. How do we improve that judgment? How do we take noise out of it? How do we also take bias out of it? There are a few things that we call decision hygiene. It doesn't just apply to investment, but it applies nicely to investment. What we mean by decision hygiene is putting in place a set of preventative techniques, a set of um, measures, a, a set of disciplines that increase the chances of you making a good decision and reduce the effect of bias and noise on your decision. The reason we call it hygiene is because it's a bit like washing your hands. You know it's a good thing. You don't know precisely what problem it's going to avoid. You don't know precisely what germ you're cleaning away when you're washing your hands. You just know from experience and from science that it's a good thing to do. And likewise, decision hygiene will never tell you, oh, this is a mistake you avoided, but it will tell you, on average, it's a good thing to have. So what is it? What sorts of things could you have in investment decisions that we would call decision hygiene? I'll give you three practical things. Practical idea number one seems obvious but isn't. It's to structure your decisions. When I say structure your decisions, I mean have a fairly detailed set of criteria, a fairly detailed grid that you're going to try to use whenever you're making an investment. The trick here is not just to have a list of attributes that you're looking for in, for instance, a company that your venture capital fund is going to invest in. It's to make sure that each of these dimensions, each of these criteria is evaluated separately from the others. I'll give you an illustration of this. If you are looking, um, I, I happen to, to, to do some venture capital investment myself, if you're looking at a company that has a great product and you evaluate the quality of the product and you're looking at the quality of the team and you evaluate the team, it's pretty clear that these two judgments are going to influence each other. If you've been very impressed by the product, you're going to be very impressed by the team. It's sensible, but at the same time, you're losing information here. You're, victim, you're falling victim to the halo effect, as it's sometimes called, which is that once you start to like the company, you start to like everything about the company and you fail to recognize that it may be lucky in that it has a stellar product, but it has only an average team. So how do you address this? You try to have different processes and different people to evaluate the different dimensions. You try to take those different dimensions of your, of your evaluation as different questions that need to be answered separately. And you try very hard 
not to form a holistic judgment about this investment, not to tell yourself a compelling story about this company, not to get too quickly to a coherent view. What you want to retain is a sense of complexity, a sense of conflict, a sense of tension, a sense that you can't quite form an intuition about this company because a structured judgment is more often than not going to be a judgment with some inconsistencies because the world is a complicated place. So first idea, structure your decision and recognize that not all the dimensions of your judgments may be in sync, that you may have inconsistencies and incoherence between the elements of the judgment. So the second idea is on each of those dimensions that you care about, that you are going to evaluate, you want to try to make a relative, not an absolute judgment. And what I mean by relative is you want to be able, in as much as you can, to compare the companies or the individuals that you're looking at to others that serve as reference points. Suppose, for instance, that we're a venture capital firm and we care about the quality of the founding team that we invest in. Of course we do. And suppose that one of the dimensions that we care about is how driven these individuals are because we think that's an important trait in entrepreneurs. We could say, uh, you know, Mike is outstanding on drive, or we could say he is great on drive, but two different people and sometimes the same person at different time, at different times might have different views of what it means to be outstanding or to be great. If we want to get specific about that, we need to compare our Mike, the entrepreneur, to reference points that we agree about. So suppose that we take 10 founders that we both know because we've invested in their companies already, and we spend a little bit of time creating a scale by ranking them from the most driven to the least driven. The next question we're going to ask is if the, the top most absolutely you know, driven person who epitomizes drive is X, does Mike compare? How does Mike compare to X? Is Mike more driven or less driven than X? Oh, no, he's not quite as driven as X. Okay, so let's go to the second one. How does he compare to the second one? And those comparative judgments, those relative judgments, are going to be a lot less noisy from one person to the next, a lot less variable than the absolute judgments that we make using a vague scale. So whenever you can make a scale comparative, so that you make your judgments relative, not absolute, you're going to reduce noise. And then the third thing you can do, still taking as an example the, 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 the venture capital investment situation, is make sure that different members of your team are forming independent views on each of those dimensions. So let's take again our VC investment. We've got a number of criteria that we care about. One of those is the quality of the founding team. It breaks down into sub-components or sub-judgments. One of those is drive. Let's ask the different members of our team who have met Mike, the entrepreneur, to give us their rating of how Mike compares to the various entrepreneurs that we've already evaluated. And let's make sure that they give us those ratings independently before we start discussing them. One big mistake that most companies make is that when they want to reach a decision, they start talking. They get together in the room and they start discussing their opinions. And of course, there is sometimes going to be disagreement and even conflict, but more often than not, the discussion is going to lead to convergence, is going to lead to consensus, because that's what organizations are good at producing. 
What you want to do instead is make sure that people have had a chance to think independently, have been shielded from the opinions of their peers, so that they are not contaminated by the judgments of others when they form their own judgments. You want to make sure that they have documented their opinion in writing before you get in the room and you start discussing. Once people have formed their independent opinions, when they have, once they have documented them, do, by all means, discuss them and, of course, try to get to a consensus, but do not stifle the disagreement before it even gets expressed, which is what a lot of organizations do. So to summarize, structure, use relative judgments, make sure that you use independent opinions and that you maintain the independence of opinions before you get people together. With that, you will already reduce noise and bias quite a bit. Yeah, that that final point you made about the independent judgments, that, that can be a really important tactic uh, for reducing noise and as, as well as sort of encouraging a cultural cohesiveness and growth internally within your firm. That's something I know it, historically we've done on our bond desk and asked all members of the team to generate a, you know, a rates forecast, for example, once a year or every six months sort of a sealed envelope kind of thing. And then it sort of ensures that everybody, you know, from the most junior to the most senior has their voice heard and has an opportunity to, to participate in it. So I, I can see how that would be, would be beneficial in this, in this setting as well. Another thing you, you talk about in the book is about keeping your intuition for the end. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. What is the impact of, of reserving judgment and trying to sort of keep, your, keep out of your own head before, before you get to the, uh, to the conclusion? Whenever we're facing a difficult, complex problem, like should I invest in this company, our aim, our, our goal, whether we're aware of it or not, is to get to a level of confidence where we can actually make that decision. We, we call this the internal signal of judgment completion. When, when we get that warm feeling that yeah, I get it. I understand enough about this company to make a call. We should invest or we should not invest. And that signal comes from a sense of coherence. It comes from a sense that all the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle fit together. Now, unfortunately, that sense of coherence, that sense of closure, that internal signal is often achieved by suppressing evidence that would make reality more complicated. We fall for confirmation bias, which is that once we start to have an opinion, we pay more attention to the evidence that confirms our opinion to the, that, that, than we do to the disconfirming evidence. We start to be less careful about looking for the data we should be looking at. When we form an opinion too early, an intuitive opinion too early, we lose information. What we want to do instead, to the extent that we can, and it's not easy, is try to keep intuition for the end. It's, tr it's to try to remain open to the possibility of different judgments. In the example of a yes or no judgment, it's easy, but in examples of judgments that are more continuous, it's also a, a range of possibilities. We want to remain open to that range of possibilities because as long as we remain open to the range of possibilities, we are listening. We, we, we have our ears open and our eyes open to the signals that might actually tell us something we don't know. We don't want to close our minds too soon. That doesn't mean don't use your intuition. In fact, telling people to not use their, their intuition is 
a losing battle anyway, because people will use their intuition. They need an intuitive sense of closure to be able to decide. But to the extent that you can, you want to use your intuition in the end to form a holistic view, having heard all the pieces of your structured judgment, having gone through all the elements of your uh, jigsaw puzzle, you don't want to do it too early because otherwise you're going to miss pieces of that puzzle. So uh, our final question here is a two-parter. So if you could tell us, what was your first job in the industry? And if you could go back and take yourself for coffee on your first day, what key piece of advice would you offer yourself? So my first job wasn't in the investment industry. It was in the, the consulting industry. Uh, so I'm not sure I can answer your question in, in the same way that most of your uh, guests would. The, the piece of advice I would give to my younger self here is probably to pay more attention to the question that I was asking at the time, which I kept asking for a few weeks and then I gave up and I only revisited it many, many years later. And that question was, if our clients are so smart and if our advice is so good, why is it so frequent that they don't follow it and that eventually they, they turn out to make stupid mistakes? You know, and the answer I would get from my colleagues to that question was evidently not very good. The answer was always something along the lines of, oh, you know, yeah, well, maybe we haven't been convincing enough or... Maybe he's not as good a CEO as we thought he was, or you know, maybe he just went crazy with power or something like that. And you know, it wasn't a very good explanation because after all, these were very successful people um, and we could basically watch the train wreck happening. We, we, we could see those bad decisions being made. If I had pushed this idea, I would have come much earlier to what I'm talking about now, which is why people have cognitive biases and why they make mistakes as a result of those cognitive biases. I mean, I certainly wouldn't have done the foundational work of Daniel Kahneman and others that you are mentioning, but that work was already done when I started working. I could have looked for it. If I had had, if I had, had enough curiosity and enough research-oriented curiosity to look into it, I would have saved a lot of time and probably would have switched careers earlier. So my, you know, my advice to my younger self would have been to have more intellectual curiosity and more, more of an academic orientation. What a treat it's been to chat with you today, Olivier. Uh, to me, it feels like we're sitting on the precipice of another sea change in thinking about risk and decision-making, kind of the way the folks were when digesting thinking fast and slow, you know, 10 years ago. Our listeners have been privileged to have heard Noise explained from one of its authors. And for that, I thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. I'm Mike Wahlberg, and this has been Guiding Assets. <laughs>